The Athletic. MotoGP could be on the cusp of another breakthrough season in 2024. Whether Marc Marquez dominates or disappoints with his Ducati switch, his team change creates a fascinating new chapter, which will be a major sporting tale, whatever happens. And we can tell, even here at the race, we can tell how much interest in the championship has risen over the last few months after a downturn that has probably been more to do with the... De- the descent and departure of Valentino Rossi and anything else. But how can MotoGP make sure it both attracts the new fans its on-track product deserves and keeps hold of them? And is it doing enough to keep hold of its existing hardcore fans? That's the theme of this episode of the Race MotoGP podcast, which includes an exclusive interview with Dorna's Chief Commercial Officer, Dan Rossomondo, in which Simon Patterson put your questions to the man who's effectively responsible for everything off-track in MotoGP and everything related to the fan experience, whether that fan experience is through a screen or from a grandstand. So we're going to get onto this chat with Dan Rossomondo pretty quickly, but Simon, just to put into context first, you spoke to him uh, in London last month. Uh, sometime between Valencia and Christmas. Now, you've been a critic of a lot of things Dorna has done over the years, but you've always made fairly positive noises to us since uh, Dan Rossomondo joined about the work he was doing. So what were your expectations for this chat? Um, I I, kind of figured that it would be maybe not aggressive, but I wasn't going to be afraid to put some questions to him because one of the biggest differences that we've noticed with Rossomondo since he arrived is that he might be... uh, you know, he might be working for Dorna, but he's brought a different attitude into the company. He is more happy to say we're not good enough at this, even while saying, you know, we're doing a really good job with another thing, um, which is a, a, a good attitude to have. And it's one that, that means that we, you know, we were able to push him uh, fairly hard in some of the questions that we threw to him and especially some of the questions that came from fans. I think uh, they were much more aggressive than I was in the the, the line of attack. Yeah, which is impressive, listeners. So well done for out-aggressiving Simon. Very good effort there. Let's get into that interview now. So let's see how Dan Rossomondo handled both Simon's questions and yours about everything off-track in MotoGP. Dan Rossomondo, thank you so much for taking a bit of time out of a hectic pre-Christmas post-Valencia schedule in the centre of London to sit down and uh, talk to the race podcast about all things all things off-track MotoGP, right. I guess, is your remit, right? That is. That is correct. You, thanks for having me, and you did not have to bring the snow. I, I <laughs> don't think I needed that, but I'm happy to be here. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm Irish. I'm not British, so I can only take so much credit okay, for the London fair. weather. That's Let's draw the line there. Okay. <laughs> um, so... You, you joined the championship at the start of this season. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think your first race was your home race in, in Austin. Austin, Texas, right? So give us, for, for, for the fans that haven't been paying attention, mm. give us a little bit of a background on where you came from and how you ended up sure. working in MotoGP. And at first, I think the fans actually pay a lot of attention. I've noticed that. Um, <laughs> I, w- I was at the NBA for 17 years. I'm an American, as the accent gave, gives away. Um, I was hired, I started April 3rd, my first race was Austin, I was hired to be commercial head of MotoGP and optimize all of the business functions there. So it's been a whirlwind, I've been to 17 circuits, the only one I skipped after Austin was Thailand because I actually had to go to meetings and do some work, but um, (laughs) it's been fantastic and I've really been thrilled with the first year. I know from from the conversations we've had over the course of the year that mm-hmm. it's fair to say that you came into MotoGP perhaps 
not knowing an awful lot about it, but you have very... Nothing. I knew nothing. <laughs> but you very quickly became a very big fan of the sport. Like, I know that. And, and your whole family, not yeah. just you. No, it was, a, it was love at first sight, to be honest with you. Um, on the grid in Austin, or even before that, going out to one of the corners for FP1, I guess, and um, just seeing the bikes in action, it was love at first sight for me and for my family. And I would say... Honestly, it got better every time I went. I thinking about it. I'm actually got goosebumps thinking about the grid. Um, and what I, you know, listen, I, I did a little. You could do a little bit of homework on the business side. You can call around and ask questions, but you really, once you're there, don't know about the visceral nature of the sport. And I quickly became enamored enamored with it. Which I guess for the for the guy whose job is basically to sell that to people who don't watch the sport. That's exactly the response everyone wanted you to have when uh, you first saw it. Mission accomplished. I mean, <laughs> it's hard. You know, I do say, I, someone on the uh, guest said to me in Doha, if you could just bottle this. And I said, yeah. So, it, it, you know, sometimes, Simon, I feel like our television production is so good. We make what these guys do look so simple and easy. Meanwhile, well, it's really not. And it's yeah. so... I have to try to figure out ways to get as many people as I can to races and just get them as in love with it as we are. You, you've had, I, I guess, the call it the guts of a season now to, to see what you know how things operate and and how things look. What you know what's been the sort of the takeaways from you from a business perspective, from a marketing perspective, from a from a hooking new fans into it perspective. Yeah. Um there's so much. I mean, I, you know, I have such a long list of things I want to do because I think the sports and the fans deserve it. You know, that's, yeah. that's, the, that's the great thing about it. I think it's ripe with opportunity to do things differently and to do things that will expose the sport to just a wider group of people. Um, and what I've learned, and to your point, to your question is, it's a, it's, it's a bit of a complex ecosystem, you know, manufacturers, teams, riders, rider management, circuits, governments, promoters, all that stuff. And I've, I think I've spent a lot of time, and you've seen me in the paddock, just kind of talking to people and learning it. And I, I have a better sense of now where the optimism, I've always had optimism, but now where I can go with that optimism. And where is it going? What, what do you see yeah, as, you know? It's good. Yeah, it's a fair question. Um, I think for a long time, well, I think the success that we will see in marketing and bringing the sport, exposing it to more people, is has to be because of how complex right now the media industry is and the entertainment media industrial complex is. There's a lot of content out there. Yes. We might have already seen peak TV, but we seem to at least keep seeing peak TV. <laughs> And I joke all the time, it, the easiest comparison for us is Formula One. But we just don't compete with Formula One. We compete with napping. We <laughs> compete with long walks on the beach and puppies. Like we, For me, I think what we have to do is deliver our sport in a way that, is, that demonstrates the visceral nature of it, but also be really nurturing of our major partnerships, the broadcast partnership, the media business writ large, the sponsors, the circuits. We have to do things that kind of at least checks four or five of those boxes. And that's yeah. where we're going with it. That's where we're really going with it. It, it, it has felt for a long time as someone that, that follows it 
pretty much closer than anyone else, I guess, is the nature of what I do. It, it feels like we've almost forgotten that it's, as well as being a sport, it's an entertainment product. And, and this goes, you know, I'm talking about things like the red height devices and the arrow that have detracted from the quality of racing that we had maybe a few years ago in search of engineering purity. Yeah, I, you know, I, as, as you well know, I cannot talk too much about engineering because I can barely spell it. <laughs> but I would say, if you're saying to me that the racing was even better, I, it's, it's, for me it's hard to, it's hard <laughs> to fathom because so, I think it's so good now. But I, the entertainment part I get. Yeah. We want to be, we have to be an entertainment product, but we have to be unique to what we are as a sport. And that's fearlessness, courage, um, overtaking. I know, you know there's always talks about certain where, where to overtake and go, but I, you know, listen, I think it's been, again, not every race can be hair on fire. Yeah, of course. But I, I, so I am so happy with where we are. Of course it can be better. Everything can, and we will strive to make everything better. And uh, from my perspective, though, is right now, current state, I have a damn good product to sell. Yes. Yeah, and, and I think when, you know, I've seen so many people have the same response to MotoGP as you've had this year, where they come in, they see it, and they love it. The problem is getting those people, getting those eyes onto it in the first place. Yeah. You know, that's, no, no, that's no, no. Yeah, big... it is. It's like, well, first of all, as any business would tell you, acquiring a new customer is a hell of a lot harder than selling something to an existing customer. Yes. That's Amazon's model. It's why when you show up on Amazon.com, you see all the things that, oh, I kind of know I wanted that, but guess what? I do want that now. They know how to sell to your existing customers. So we have to, and someone used this phrase with me, I'm stealing it. We have purists. I want more purists. But we also have tourists. And I want many more tourists who are also, some are going to turn into purists. Yeah. And that's a hard challenge. It's not easy. It's, like, it's not going to happen overnight, but we are, we are determined to show this sport off to more and more people. And it's, it's going to go, there's going to be a lot of different things we're going to do. We're going to use data better. We're going to use content better. We're going to bring in, um, we have a great roster of existing marketing partners, and we're going to expand that list. So there's a lot of things we're going to do in that regard. I mean, I, I think the purists in particular, and, and I think largely everyone who listens to our podcast is going to be a purist. We're, we're a niche, you know, we know what we're doing. Of course. We know who we're talking to. Um, I think a lot of them are going to say that they see it as being really difficult to do that while we're still behind a paywall in so yeah. many countries. Yeah. Meaning, so listen, and that... I have told my team at Dorna this. I will tell my fans this as well. Every problem that you think exists in the in this in our world exists with other sports and other businesses. Yeah. It's not unique to us. Like yeah. there's some things like maybe Arrow is unique to us. It's not really, but whatever. But like paywall making the judgment or the decision between free to air and pay TV, every business struggles with it. You have to find the right balance. Um, I think we will do that. I think, you know, listen, you have to figure out a way to monetize the product while still, you know, bringing it out of a, um, its shell in a lot of ways. And we'll, we'll strike that balance. So we have to, and listen, our media partners, we're going to be working closely, our main media partners, all of our media partners, we will be working more closely with them to deliver a really good product that people are going to love. And it also, it feels... Again, this is not a MotoGP thing. This is a broader thing that we're in the middle of a bit of a transition period away from, maybe not away from paid TV, but obviously streaming is changing yeah. how we do things. And no sport really seems to have 
very hard. Clicked with that yet? It's very Find hard. Find a, a way. No, 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 it's very hard. I, I listen. I I know we have um, glitches in our video press product. I know people don't love how we price it sometimes. I know. I've seen all the Twitter comments. I'm actually the one man customer support team. Like I get that. <laughs> Not one man, but I'm on Twitter doing yes. customer support. Yeah. It's a really hard thing to do, like because you, I think you have to also understand the history. Sports have made their money by selling it and, and walking away. Letting yeah. someone else then distribute it and try to figure out how to make money off what we've sold them. And that's not, and therefore we haven't built the muscle up to actually know direct-to-consumer marketing, to know um, recency, to know upselling, to know um, what the right pricing points are. We have to, we continue to, we continue to work on that, but it's not our core capability. We are a racing company. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's what we do. So all that other stuff is really something that we have to get better at and, and utilize partners to help us with. So is that somewhere we're going to see your influence? Yeah. Hopefully in the Definitely. next few. Definitely. Yeah. Because because like you say, hey, listen, it's, we it's, got rid, we got we we got rid of spoilers, so that was my influence. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that is that has been one of the number one complaints. Yes, yeah, it is. I give you that. Yes. Um, no, it. it and I'm sure someone will say, you haven't got rid of spoilers yet because of this device. I'm like, well, I'm, well, I'm sure we're working on it. I, it's it's got to be frustrating at times for you because you, you've become, I think, quite quickly the guy on Twitter from Dorna that speaks to everyone. So you're the guy that gets all the criticism. But also, Rome wasn't built in a day and you've yeah. only been there, you know, you've been there a season. Yes. Not even. Eight, it, almost it, eight this months. Is going almost to eight months. <laughs> so, so are we going to see change coming now we've got two months now yep. where we're not racing which is obviously as we both know it's not time off no, no, we're no, not no. going to be sitting around doing nothing no, no, no. but is that an opportunity for you to start yes. changing how some things work we've started changing things already um, some of them you'll not see frankly and it's not on the tech side but just in terms of the way we approach things and the way we're looking to do things we've already started changing things um, but we will accelerate that now and um, I think you'll see again There'll be small steps. Sometimes there'll be big steps. Um, but change is, you know, change is an interesting thing for people. It's it definitely a wave of emotion comes over when you see change. I think that what I want to do is evolve the product, not revolutionize anything. It's evolution, not revolution. Well, I mean, everything we're talking about is is stuff that's secondary to the on-track action of course. which is the thing that, that it needs tweaked right now I think there's things that need tweaked but, but it doesn't need wholesale change no I mean look I go to a like, I, I, I can't think of I can remember <laughs> I can remember some of the eh races because there aren't that many yeah but I can remember like listen we had 15 people on the podium this year we had 8 different winners I know you know the stat that we haven't had a back to back this year yeah. which is since 1940 since, since year 1 so it's just crazy which is wild which is, yeah yes so I think we have a you know the, the on track product of course we can figure out ways to improve it but we're starting from a good level let's yeah. keep it let's keep doing that and I want to then now on the commercial side, I want to raise the standard in the paddock and outside of the paddock on how we do commercial business. And we're already talking about that, the, the change that's coming on track, because we've got the new 2027 yeah. rules coming. Is that something that you want to be maybe even peripherally involved with just to just to sort of get a steer in what way, you know? Yeah, no, I, <laughs> there's a difference between peripherally involved and anybody <laughs> listening to my input. <laughs> I think I, I will be peripherally involved because I think there's like some, there's going to have to be messaging about it. Yes, right? of course. So I'll be involved yeah. in that regard. Yeah. But listen, Carlos and uh, the team, they know what the hell, they know what they're doing. The man, like I, 
I will be, I will not say a word. How about that? <laughs> um, you know, because the first thing they would ask is, okay, Dan, show me where the brake pad is. <laughs> and I won't be able to do it, okay? <laughs> so there you go. But I, I mean, from a messaging standpoint, what we're doing, why we're doing, and what we think we're going to accomplish, yeah, yeah I'll be involved. Cool. But not from a technical yeah. standpoint. Yeah. <laughs> that, trust me, I'm, I'm on the same page as you here. Boy. <laughs> um, we, so everything we've talked about is, is about the sort of the broader yeah. fan experience. In terms of what's being done for the people that go racing, yeah. that get to the circuit every year, what's in the pipeline there? What can we see differently? Do you mean the riders or do you mean No, the no, fans? I mean the fans. I mean Almost, the people think, coming to the tracks. I think one thing, and I'll give Carlos Espelette a lot of credit. He said to me in Austin, he said one thing we have to do is sometimes we have thought that the people who are coming to our, our, our circuits are the promoter's customers. They're our fans. Yeah. So we've yeah. got to treat them like that. And we've done some, we've had some innovation in Silverstone. We did the first thing where you can have a QR code and have your pictures up on the video boards. It happened again this weekend in, yeah. um, in Valencia. Valencia. Yeah. So we're doing things like that. We put the sprint podium inside the fan zone. Yes. We put it in the paddock. So we're trying to and always enhance that experience. I mean, I think for the people who are coming to our races, and we've almost had a record year. We're yeah. so close to being able to say it that I might just say it. But no, <laughs> we are so close to having a record career in attendance, and we want to build on that. We want to make the experience really good. You'll, we're seeing trends, which I think are excellent. Um, people letting um, youngsters in with their parents for free. Yeah. That to me is great. I've been so heartened about how many little kids I've seen at our races. Um, so you'll continue to see an evolved product in that regard. It's, it's, it's an area of focus for us because these are our purists, right? Yeah, absolutely. And we need to keep them happy and keep coming back. And it seems like, you know, we, we've both been to a lot of races this year. We both know that there's some places that do such a good job of it. Le Mans, the Saxon Rings, the Assens. Yep. There's some places that struggle a little bit. Yep. But there's there's a, a the, the, there's a lot of circuits that are trying to learn yes. from those that are yes, good. And it's it. paying off now. I can see that. That's it. And that's yeah. the intent. And I think, listen, the, the Hero Walk has been a huge success this year. I mean, that was fun. The Rider Parades. Uh, yeah. I think... Sometimes it's watching these guys try to shoot T-shirts into the stands. I, I, I laugh because that was my first job in sports was uh, I'm using a slingshot to throw T-shirts into a fan, into, into a crowd. But, like, I think it's really good. And I think we just need to continue to bring our sport closer to the people. And I will say premium yet accessible. That's the model we're going for. And our, and our riders are both. Does that mean making the riders work a little bit harder away from the track? Does that mean making them, you know, putting them out in front center of in front of fans more love often, yeah, making them more? To. I think, I think these guys are um, heroic in a lot of ways. I think we sometimes take for granted their athleticism. Yeah, I mean, I try not to show pictures of these guys with their shirts off to my wife. It's quite difficult when Fabio Quadraro is in the championship. Yes. I mean, I mean like, the boy know, doesn't like being photographed with clothes goodness on. My gracious, she's got. I mean, like their 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 muscles have muscles. But I think we need to do. We continue to need to work on that and get them. And also, you know, you talked about the circuits, but what are we doing outside of the circuits? That's yeah. my bigger thing. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And you know, two hundred almost two hundred eighty thousand people at Le Mans. That's a pretty damn good crowd. <laughs> yeah. But what are we doing in France for the rest of the year? Yes. What are we doing in Saxon, Germany for the rest of the year? That's the stuff we also have to figure out. Yeah. So. Important. So, looking, you know, looking down the line, looking once there's been time to, to put some of these changes in place, what do you see? Like, what's your vision for where MotoGP should be in three years or five years compared to where it is now? 
it's not an easy. I'm, no, I'm putting no, you on no. the spot. That's no, not no, an easy no. question. I probably but... should have numbers in my head. That's probably a, a to-do thing I should write down. Is actually maybe put some benchmarks. Note to self. But what I would say, and I'll and I'll and I'll just use a I'll just use a example, Simon. When I first got here, I asked for in Hereth, I asked for an invitation to be to, for me to send to somebody for Le Mans. Yeah. A few people. I wanted to invite them. And I got an invitation that we had put together before I came. And it said, come enjoy the world's most excited motorcycling racing. And I quickly said, okay, please take out motorcycle racing. And maybe instead of just saying most exciting motorsport, maybe it's the most exciting sport. That's the standard I want to get to. I want us to be able to be walking around with a swagger that we are the most exciting sport and we have the commercial chops to match it. That's the goal I have. It's very audacious. It's a little bit ambitious. But I think that if we can show people how exciting the sport is and then we can have the commercial heft to match it, I'd be happy in three, five years. Small goals. Small goals. <laughs> Small goals. But there's, there's, there's yeah. not a huge amount needed to get there no, as well, which is... Like a lot of work needed to get there. A lot of work, but yeah. That's the other thing. It's like, you got to be willing to do it. Of course. Um, and I, you know, I, I tell my team all the time, they... They got the worst of worst of three worlds. They got an American, they got a New Yorker, and they got a former NBA employee, and we work. We work. <laughs> Instead of me asking you all of the questions yeah. in this, we thought we'll, we'll do what we do in our podcast. Yeah. We'll go to the fans. And actually, having it a, a quick listen to some of what has been asked, I will tell you, Straight up, like they're harsher than me here. Oh, which is how is you know, that possible? That's that's but that's that's good, right? Yeah, we're we're doing the one man the, the one man customer uh, service role, yeah, no, right? So the the first question is from one of our regular listeners, um, who's actually not too far away from you, no. but Mike's in Pennsylvania. He's not one far state at all. over, not far at one all. state over. And his question is about uh, content, basically, yep. and actually about something we've been speaking about before yeah. we came on air. Hey, Mike Falcone from Pennsylvania in the United States. I'm totally obsessed uh, with MotoGP. I uh, wake up at all hours of the night to watch the racing. And I have lots of friends that I like to get pulled into watching it and being as fanatical as I am. But the problem that I have is everything is behind a paywall. And there is no, you even need to create an account to view free content. And if I was to post, make a post with, a video that I took attending a race, it gets flagged by Dorna as being copyright material. So how am I supposed to help spread the word that MotoGP is a great sport if everything is either taken down or behind a paywall? So yeah, so we talked about a little bit about the, the fine line between monetization and uh, availability, and we're going to continue to try to strike the right balance there. But the one thing where I'd say that he's going to see a difference is the accessibility of content um, in terms of what we do to enhance our digital reach. You know, this the world of distributed content has changed a lot over the last ten years. Like social, it's not even social media anymore; it's just media. Media right now is these things are available out there, and what I want to do is, you know. We've been very guarded. We've got to be less guarded. Highlights are marketing in a lot of ways. We're going to work with a lot of different media companies. Um, I, 
I don't think we're ever going to be freely distributing our races anywhere. Yeah, that's, our that's, live product is I'm going to build a moat around our live product. But after that, we're going to be we're going to be able to distribute some stuff in different ways. And I think. Uh, first of all, Mike, thank you for being a fan, and thank you for waving the flag of MotoGP in America. Um, we'll try to figure out all that stuff to make it a little bit easier to show your fandom. How about that? Fair, yeah. fair. Uh, so an another question that I've been we've been sending as a written question um, from a fan called Tejas in India, who asks, and this is something that I don't think you've actually encountered yet because it's a it's something that we haven't had changed since okay. you joined the company. But he says, how does Dorna handle the selection process of new venues in the calendar? Um, apart from the obvious track specifications, what are the factors that are taken into consideration from a commercial point of view? Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, I do not envy Carlos Espaleta who has to do the <laughs> calendar. It's a major jigsaw puzzle. It's a huge challenge. I would say it goes without saying that the first thing is safety. Yeah, it's got to be homologated circuits. It's got to be safe for our guys. Um, the second thing is we want to this next year we have eleven inside Europe, eleven outside. That's a pretty that's a pretty that's, good, that's a good balance. balance. Yeah. Um, we want to uh, think about the environment. Obviously, we want to be able to create a calendar calendar that is environmentally friendly. So as we're trying to get around, we're not uh, doing too much. Um, we've done a lot in terms of reducing the freight boxes, streamlining all of our efforts there. We're going to continue to do that. So that's a really important cause. And then look, we're going to go to some places that are just racing meccas. Yes. We're going to go to some places where we're going to try to make some money. Yeah. And that's a good balance there as well. Um, so we went for the first time to India this year, and there were some hiccups. There were some challenges. But it turned out to be a great day. And the guys liked the track, and it turned yeah. out to be a, some really good racing. It was hot. <laughs> it was hot, but it, it was, was good. hot. It was good. Yeah, yeah. And it's the, the biggest motorcycle market in the world. It, it only makes sense that we go to India, Correct. to Indonesia, to Thailand. Yes. And, and anyone who questions, like for me, anyone who questions whether we're, you know, why we go to places like that, all you have to do is go there and experience yeah, it. Yeah, of it, course. It, and, I think we, and I think, and I've said this before, I think we are privileged to be able to take the sport to so many places. Yeah. It's, it's, we're, it's a privilege, really. And to bring the sport that people love to them. And now, you know, it's... There's a few that can actually do that. Yes, absolutely. Cool. All right. Uh, the next question is from Carolina. Sprint races were introduced as a way to allow fans to experience on-track action throughout the whole weekend, but also as a way to increase engagement and bring more fans into MotoGP. After a year, do you think that move paid off? And are you planning any changes to the current format? I think sprint races worked. I think I, from a business standpoint, they worked. I mean, yeah. there's no if ands or buts about that from a commercial standpoint they worked yeah they gave the circuits three days of really great programming they gave our media partners a flout out exciting yeah thing on saturday i would say jorge martin thinks they worked <laughs> i, I absolutely sure. think he does um and it's it's good to give us now and i think doing them every week i know that's been a little bit of a testy conversation with some of our riders but doing every week is makes it easier to navigate our schedule Yes. And, okay, and that's a, and I think what people have to understand. And that, that, I'm sorry, that sounded like I was talking down to people. That's not what I meant. What I think I sometimes have to understand <laughs> is this media world nowadays. People are creatures of habit, and in, in discovery in the media world is very hard because of streaming, because of like just um, individualization abilities. So by putting something that's saying, okay, here is our schedule. Yeah. It makes it a little bit easier for folks. So. I think the format is what it is for next year. I don't think we're looking at other changes, but I think we've also demonstrated, and kudos to us, 
like we're going to announce or we announced that we're going to have uh, free practices for Moto2 and Moto3. Um, we announced that we took away one of the, we made it a, a free practice for MotoGP in the middle yep. of the season this year. Yep. So we're willing to do things yes. to, to listen to people, which yep. is a good thing. Cool. Yeah. Uh, the next one is Jean-Luc. Hi, Dan. Hi, Simon. Thanks for taking my questions. Um, just want to start off and wonder your thoughts on expanding the broadcast group and including more women and people of color and kind of expanding the offerings, having maybe a daily show, a daily recap show and a weekend warm up show. And then also wondering how you're feeling about, you know, getting more cameras around the track, maybe fixed ones to better show the speed of the bikes. And then how the wings are now affecting, you know, it looks like they're affecting the rear camera on the bikes and just how you guys are trying to deal with that. Thanks. Well, Jean-Luc, that was four questions. <laughs> it's, uh, it's starting to sound like some of the questions that we were putting yes. to you are planted. Yes. Because yeah. this is exactly what we were yeah, talking about yeah, whenever yeah. we said about the visceral nature yes, of the sport yes. earlier. Um, first part about women and people of color yeah we'd love to diversify our continue to diversify our broadcasting thing i think one of the things we've demonstrated it's not on the commercial side but on the sporting side we're launching a women's world championship this year which we're very behind and we're excited about um and look i think if i look down at some of our <laughs> i love Susie perry i'm i'm completely in, I, I completely love her in terms of what she does I love Alina from Service. I like Elsa. I love the people from Service TV. We have some really great talent in the paddock. Yep. We all know that. Uh, Vera from the Sky. Uh, we have to continue to do that. Um, the other question he asked about the uh, the daily show and the weekly shows, like, yeah, sure. I mean, I think, look, I came from the NBA. Inside the NBA might be the best wraparound, might do the best ancillary programming in the world. Uh, match of the day here in the UK yep. is phenomenal. Exactly. So, yeah, I, I would love to consider doing that um we have 160 cameras that we bring to bear on a weekend that's a freaking lot of cameras um we'll continue to look at more i think we have a very very um um good cadence with our broadcasters to continue to innovate on that front yeah. i think we will do that and i do laugh about how these guys are putting things on the back of their bike and they just they just block the camera i'm like that's we'll figure out another place to put a camera, but that's that's pretty funny. Um, but like, I also think like we're gonna explore. We, if you saw it this past weekend, we did radio for the first time inside a box. Yeah, yeah, of TV, course, and I it worked really cool. well. Yeah, I thought it was really, really cool. liked it. Um, so yeah, so we're gonna continue to innovate in that regard. Cool. And and it, it's not part of Jean Luc's question, but yes. it's one I get asked, so I'm gonna throw it to you as well. Is there any plans to give fans more access to which cameras they're looking at? Because this but is obviously this is something I've wondered really well. The first suggestion by my son Luke. Yeah. The first suggestion by my okay. son Luke was like the like again back to the NBA. The NBA has you could pick a camera to watch one guy the whole game. Like yes. why can't I watch Marco Bezzecchi or Jorge Martin the entire race? And it's actually due to the fact that a we don't want to be showing them a bad crash. Yes. If they have a bad crash, so maybe with a delay we're going to look at that. But I okay. think it's a great point. Yeah, it's a great point. The more and more individualization we offer fans, I think the better, but we also, you know, we're going to continue to just look at the whole thing and try to create the best product that we can. Yeah. No, I mean, this is, you know, we often hear guys who are further down the grid, you know, the, the collective term now for, for being sort of in the back 10 of the MotoGP grid is the jungle. Yeah. That, and we understand that you can't show every battle, every race, but it would be really nice to be able to dip into that afterwards. No, I agree with that. So it's, I understand I the that. sentiment behind people no, asking I about it. I definitely understand that. And look, and the thing is, is like, what really kind of 
amplifies that point is that they're so close in qualifying. Like yes. one to twenty is typically what a second, a second and a half, second and a half. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. It's not like they're not doing a great job. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool. Uh, next question is some. <laughs> First one. I'd say from the same page. Uh, the next question is from Shante, who again another uh, US listener who has quite a specific question that uh, I, I understand exactly where she's coming from, especially with some of the rumors around MotoGP at the minute. Shante Taswell here. Good afternoon, Dan. What is the likelihood of bringing back-to-back races to the United States once the new Flat Rock Motorsports Park opens in Tennessee? Shante, well, listen, I there is no secret that I speak with an American accent, and I would love to have back-to-back races in the United States. And if Flat Rock's that, or if there's another place built, we will we, we will go. We want to do it. But I think what's more important is that we have to prepare the market for it. Yeah. You know, I think that, and we're going to start doing some stuff in that regard. We're going to start looking at how we can build up the, um, we've actually engaged a few different partners on understanding what our potential reach is in that market. So you'll see it. There's a, again, there's got some ideas and we're going to exploit it. I would say um, stay tuned for some really cool announcements, but it's an important place for us to be. Cool. And obviously, so we're recording this not very long after Valencia. There's there's some news that's coming that I'll talk about so as not to put you in the spot on. But uh, it sounds like we're going to have a new team coming soon who are literally just down the road from Nashville. Um, in fact, I think Team Boss is from Nashville. Uh, it, it, there's a lot of opportunities in you know, there's a lot of opportunities in the U.S. for more than one race. Yeah, it's a big country. It is a big country. And it's a big motorcycling culture, too, as well. Yeah. Cool. Um, we've got another one that, that's been sent in by email um, that I'm going to read out to you instead. This is this is one I get asked a lot. And it, this is putting you on the spot. I'm, I'm not going to, you know. Uh, F1 TV costs 40 euros a season. MotoGP Video Pass, depending on where you buy it, I think is anything from 160 to 200 and you know, I, I regularly get asked, like uh, like Dinos has in his message, why the disparity, and and can we? Is that something we can hopefully see change? Yeah, goodness, it's not putting me on the spot. By the way, it's something that we have to look at. I think, um, you know, it, the video pass product is, I think, pretty darn good. I think you know, Formula One is less expensive, but they also have more pernicious blackout rules than we do, which you know we don't have. But I would say where we do have the opportunity is to look at, and I said this earlier about being a direct-to-consumer marketing, is look at pricing and flexibility. But that said, we also have to, um, you know, there's a reason why it's in English. Yes. Because so we don't com- com- create a, com- a competitive product to our Spanish, French, Italian, Dutch, German broadcasters, right? Um, but we also know that there's fans that love it. And yes, I'm looking at taking timing out of it and creating, a t- you know, putting timing into it. And thinking, I know all those questions have come <laughs> up. Just I, I assume that, although there's some really good questions and there's some things that I haven't thought about, there's, everything is being thought of. <laughs> everything is yeah, really yeah. being thought of. So, um, but I get it. I get that question a lot. And oh. I'm, I'm, with, I'm with you on it. We'll see. Fair enough. I mean, I, I, we've covered everything. Yeah. I think that's, um, we've covered lots over the course of 40 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Um, thank you so much for making the time no, to do it. Great. It's really it's appreciated great. to be able to sit down with you and, and yeah, go through it. everything. Instead of just running by you in the paddock as I'm, yeah. run, as I'm running someplace. Quick, quick, quick jumps oh past goodness. each other. 
Um, yeah, the I think you have to live a race weekend to experience what a race weekend's really like from that regard, don't you? My wife looked at me on Saturday night in Valencia and said, "Well, you said you didn't want to be bored." I'm like, "Well, I <laughs> slap me next time." She's nailed that. Slap me next time. Yeah, no, it's not. It's definitely fast paced and it's it's awesome. But thank you for being a part of the traveling circus as well. That's great. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I think I'm, MotoGP has fundamentally broken me in that I couldn't go back to a nine-to-five job. <laughs> it's just impossible now. What, what would you do? You yeah, know? Exactly right. Just, exactly just, I right. would miss like airport lounge food. Yeah. And, <laughs> and if there's any, and all those questions on Twitter that are asked about the technical stuff, he'll do a special podcast with someone else on the technical <laughs> stuff. I'm sorry so, that I can't so, answer so, it. So what you're saying is you're, you're just promising that Carlos Espeleta is going to come oh, on and join us. And <laughs> I, might be able to, I might be able to convince him. <laughs> well, we'd love to have him yeah. on, and we've loved having you on. Thank you very much. Thanks, Simon. So thanks again. Everyone has sent in a question for Dan. Please do let us know via the usual channels what you made of his answers and whether you were happy with them. Simon, do you think he did enough to tackle the points that both you and the listeners were raising there? I I think that he gave us a fairly full account of the solutions that he has to the problems he's already found. But there may be, you know, there's still solutions that we haven't seen that he hasn't seen that, that still have to emerge. And I think part of that is going to need to see how a season plans out. Um, he's going to need a bit of time this year to actually implement some of the stuff that he's done. And we're going to have to see how that works to to get a feel for whether or not there's real change coming here. Um, I, I get the impression that there's still a little bit of opposition within the, the Dorna ranks to some of the things he wants to do. And maybe that's why, you know, it's going to take a little bit of time just to make sure that he has the, the kind of, the, the sway within the organization to make it happen. But by and large, it sounded fairly positive to me. Um, you know, it is clear that he's brought a new attitude to how things work here. Uh, and we've, you know, one of our main criticisms uh, for the longest time here has been that Dorna is perhaps too insular. And he's changed that instantly. You know, that that is the first and most immediate impact that he's made on the whole thing. So, yeah, I'm, I'm positive. So we've got our usual uh, third part of the process here as well, Val Horinci. Val, you were listening to that interview as well. Um, what did you make of, of how Rosamondo handled everything we were throwing at him? Yeah, I think, you know, obviously I've, I've also met Dan, though not as, not as frequently as Simon being a, a paddock regular. Dan's obviously a, a, a very smart guy with a track record of success from a, from a league that I think has, I don't want to say punched above its weight, but what the NBA has done in the media landscape in, in many facets over the past, you know, 20 or 30 years and over, you know, Dan's tenure there, it's very, very impressive. And you could argue that they faced a similar sort of situation to to us where they've, you know, they've had big st- big stars retire and it hasn't really hurt them meaningfully. My, they, they lost Michael Jordan twice and they were fine. They're, you know, LeBron James is about to retire you know, after one or two or three years. And there's no there's no doubt in my mind they'll be absolutely fine with that. Um, it's, you know, I think going to specific concerts, I think I did hear a bit of reservation into committing to anything. And that's because this is such a complex ecosystem. And all of those, you know, moves that we might want MotoGP to make, all of those things that we might want to implement for one reason or another, they're either, there's going to be, pushback or there's just you know contractual minefields and stuff like that like simon i i did hear correctly he 
basically dismissed the prospect of going of offering up the product for free for for the most part right and yeah yeah live live specifically was that was the 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 borderline there wasn't it yeah and like arguably in, in a way we would want that and a lot of you know a lot of the people listening to it will be like well why not that's that's the best way to grow the sport but obviously when you sell it that's you know you get the money when it's free then you have to get the money the other way and it's you know it, i make it sound simple i guess but it is it is incredibly complex and even if you you know you could argue that making it free is how you set yourself up for long-term success but if if the financiers behind it start to you know start to feel themselves going in the red start to see the revenue streams not coming across there's only so much you can do uh it's a complicated thing that's why i'm always a little bit reluctant to criticize because it's just such a complicated business i'm sure there are inefficiencies i'm sure there are things right now that can and, and have to be fixed and that's you know that's Dan Rossomondo's immediate job is to find the the moments of inefficiency that aren't really about the financial push and pull but are just about this is something that has always been done wrong and now I have to make it right I I I respect that he's not going to go into detail on that just yet also because that would be putting potential you know work of other people on last which you don't want to do but that's you know that's his immediate goal and then we go into more existential stuff uh, but you know he handled himself well. He clearly he knows what he's doing. It's just a question of the remit and the time. And you know, even sometimes when you're you do things well and you know what you're doing, you can still not succeed. It's never taken for granted, even if you're even if you're smart about it. Yeah, I, I think one of my main takeaways while listening to it was that it felt short on specifics, but that I wasn't surprised by that i was thinking what what else can he do at this point he's not going to reveal too many of dawner's commercial master plans for the next five years on the race motor gp podcast uh, like you say he's not going to expose the work of others before it's ready here he was making the right sort of noises but he couldn't really go more specific than the overall noises i did like very early on when he said that motor gp's competition isn't just f1 it's not just other sports it's taking your dog for a walk on the beach or what was it walking puppies specifically on the beach napping and, and, and puppies naps yeah, yeah i mean yeah. Good luck anyone fitting a nap into your life. But um, yeah, I, I, under, he's, I think his head is in the right place in terms of this is not just... People often look at any motorsport in relation to F1 all the time or other sports really. You've got to look at anything that's an entertainment product in comparison to anything else anybody could do with their free time. And speaking of which, we have an extra uh, guest on the podcast this week, the race media's creative lead, Oliver Card. And now if we call on Ollie in this company, it's usually to design something, make it look a lot better for us than we are capable of ourselves. But today we brought him on, onto this podcast because he is a prime example of a relatively new MotoGP fan. Uh, he's got into the sport in the last few years and attended his first MotoGP event in person at Silverstone last year. And I was just thinking, once we had this Ross Amanda interview lined up, I thought, Basically, if MotoGP wants to keep growing, it needs more ollies and it needs to keep those ollies on board once it's once it's lured them. So, Ollie, thank you so much for going out of your comfort zone a little bit to join us on this podcast this morning. Um, we're very grateful <laughs> for that. Uh, what were your thoughts listening to, to what Dan was saying, particularly as someone who, you know, you, you've made your own way into the MotoGP world as a new fan in the last few years, despite the... Yeah, the hurdles to overcome of pay TV and that kind of thing. How? What was what was your overall sense from what Dan was saying? Well, firstly, thank you so much for having me on. It's a real pleasure to be on the podcast. Um, everything that he was saying made me very optimistic, I think. And I think, obviously, that's part of his remit. He's going to be 
nurturing these deals and trying to grow the sport and get it in front of more eyeballs. It, it is quite, um, it was quite broad scale, everything that he was talking about, but nothing felt like the wrong direction to be heading in. And it definitely aligned with some of the thoughts that I've had in sort of the first few years as a fan, getting into the sport and really trying to delve deeper into it. Um, also, bearing in mind, you know, he, he acknowledges himself, he's not even been in for 12 months yet. So he's not, you know, this first year, I think he's doing the right thing by by listening to fans, by engaging with people in that way. And it is very refreshing to see somebody of that seniority respond to single posts on Twitter, X. You know, he's he's putting himself out there in a way which I think is quite refreshing. And I think it's it, everything he's saying is is heading in a good direction. But you've got to get into the specifics with these things. And it's such a multi-layered world in which, you know, we're, we're talking about here. For you, when you first got into MotoGP, what what attracted you to it? I guess you're an F1 fan first, weren't you? And did you go, were you watching on BT in the UK? Did you immediately buy a Dawn and Video Pass? What was your kind of journey to getting involved? Well, motorcycle racing has always had this sort of curiosity for me, and it's always looked amazing from the outside. And I used to watch the occasional race when it was free to air in the UK. And I love what I saw, but I didn't follow it in the way that I sort of followed every single F1 race, and I'd watch every race weekend and catch up in that way. Um, and then a few years ago, uh, it actually coincided with me learning to ride a motorcycle myself and suddenly stepping into that sort of biker community into the into this wonderful world of motorcycling, a uh, very passionate community that you have. Um, it suddenly felt like it felt like the time to really go beyond the headlines, sort of knowing who the key people are and really trying to watch the sport in that way. Unfortunately, this perfectly coincided with everything being behind a paywall. So <laughs> it, it was slightly unfortunate timing. Uh, however, the way that I sort of first really started to watch was through the YouTube highlights. And this obviously, okay. Rosamondo uh, picked up on the fact that highlights are marketing in that way. And I think that was a good way to sort of get in and start to sort of at least know, you know, understand a bit beyond the headline what was what was really going on in that way and sort of understand it from a visual perspective. But you're getting such a small snippet of really the story of the race and everything that leads up to it as well. It's very, it's a very clipped experience of what it is. Um, but last year was probably the first year where I, I really tried to commit myself to, to catching up more. But, you know, I did the video pass trial for the Portimao weekend. I, I didn't suffer the technical issues that I think some other people did. Um, but the trouble is that at the timing that it came out, I really felt like I was the wrong side of the um I was the wrong side of payday let's say to to be able to just drop a couple of hundred euros on that video pass for the year and that is one thing which is unfortunately really prohibitive and it's it's a real shame not to not to sort of have that uh you know be able to get access in that way um so throughout the rest of the year I pretty much was on YouTube highlights so I watched the ITV highlights when they came out a few days later sort of catch a bit more of the race um so it's been a bit of a hodgepodge mix of a few different things. And obviously, I was lucky enough to take myself off to the British Grand Prix um, in August, which was which was a fantastic experience. And again, you talk about getting the hook, seeing the car, seeing the uh, motorbikes in person really was just that exceptional experience. And I, and I think that's the thing which is going to make everyone, a, you know, turn everyone from a from a tourist to a purist. But that's uh, you know not everyone necessarily has that accessibility um, I was quite lucky in that way that is interesting that despite getting into it as much as you did and ha and doing the trial still the cost of video pass was prohibitive um, and still the the sports channel it's on wasn't something that you you were willing to kind of 
chuck into your monthly costs. Um, but you still, yeah. And I'd, I, I'd be surprised if a lot of people who weren't committing to buying the product in that way were actually make, making it to the races. Um, I'm, re- I'm impressed that you did. But I, I agree. I, f- I found Video Pass has just correct. It just seemed to be more and more expensive. It's a great product. The amount of archive footage you get from it, the amount of wall-to-wall MotoGP and support categories you can have on your screen all throughout the weekend is fantastic. But it is a purist kind of product, essentially. And that is, it's a big commitment. It feels like there should be an in- something in between the short highlight snippets and, and that. Yeah, and yeah, it is a great great product for what it is. I think for me, the issue was that being able to spend that kind of couple of hundred euros out the course of the year was was difficult because I knew just the nature of, you know, being an adult and having commitments and other things outside of sport. I wasn't going to be able to commit myself every single race weekend. And that, what I don't want to do is buy something where it's going to sit there and I'm going to feel guilty for not using it, you know, like a gym membership or anything like that. You want to be able to, you want this to be a real treat and something that you really enjoy in that way and like you say the archive is fantastic and all of those documentaries all of those ways in which as me as a newcomer who's looking sort of to the past as well as the future of the sport who's wanting to educate themselves on on what has been what these people these key people were in the history of the sport i'm looking forward to doing that and i think i'd imagine going forward i'm sort of going to be in a position where i'm going to have to go right i'm just going to have to bang it on a credit card and deal with you know deal with it over, over a longer term payment period but um i think as a newer fan, it's it's really that bit more cost prohibitive. And if you look at the options in the UK, so obviously we have TNT Sport, which comes out about £30 a month. And that is, you know, I like the TNT team. I, I think it's it's a good product in, in that. But I think you're talking about lots of additional costs on top of, you know, we all have separate bills and separate things going on. There's other streaming platforms we're paying for. And it just becomes that point where it's it becomes that fifth, sixth, tier on top and with tnt sport there is the sense of you know motor gp is the seventh most important sport maybe that maybe seventh or eighth you know you look at the trailer for when they they rebranded bt into tnt and uh motor gp it was sort of football 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 people punching each other for a bit (laughs) bit more football and then oh here's a really horrendous crash for marquez and then football football and it was like, oh, okay, so are they really, do they know what they've got? Because what they've got is fantastic, but it's not maybe getting that due prominence compared to compared to some of the other sports that they, they have ownership of. A lot of the fan questions that we put to Dan Rossamondo were on this subject of free-to-air TV versus paywall. I Part of me, as much as I do agree about the cost of video pass and that sort of thing, part of me does think, is this still really a 2024 conversation? Looking at how streaming services have taken over all kinds of viewing, um, I think the days of a sport needing to be on BBC Grandstand for breakthrough are, are, are long gone. But like I said, there must be a middle ground somewhere. Val, what are your thoughts? No, I agree because I, I'm not sure how many people right now get into get into a sport. They maybe give it a second chance through TV, and maybe sometimes you're you know you're channel scrolling and you you find a, a sport and you're like, oh, I like that, and you catch up with it. But I don't think that's the main way people onboard now. Now. Uh, Matt will know what what sport I never shut up about in in Slack. Matt will be quite familiar with my incessant NFL NFL chat. Yes, yes. which for there's, me the there's, NFL there's f- yeah for me the NFL onboarding that that one that Taylor Swift plays. Yes, that is that is in fact where <laughs> Taylor Swift plays. Yeah, dust touchdowns, she kicks the field goals and punts. Um, <laughs> I've heard of her, uh, but yeah, for me the the NFL onboarding process was 
not TV. I didn't catch it on TV. It was through playing a bit of the NFL video game just to see what the, the sport is like and ah, then okay. consuming copious amounts of YouTube independently researched stuff into various fun stories about the NFL that, you know, with time, the more of them I watched, the more I was like, okay, I feel I have a knowledge base of this. It's sort of, it's getting to me. So now I can justify the expenditure of getting their version of the of the video pass, which I think is right now where I am, it is similarly priced, but it's the problem for MotoGP is with that sort of pricing, there's not a lot of people who can afford to do that for multiple sports, right? Yeah. And when I say not a lot, I mean the vast majority of people could not, you know, shell out 160, 200, whatever for the MotoGP video pass and then do that for others, another sport that might be their primary sport, because if they watch MotoGP, there's a decent chance they're a, a sport fan in some other capacities. Maybe they're a Formula One fan. Okay, F1 TV is, is cheaper, but that's, you know, it, it compounds. And then there's all the subscriptions that yeah, are, are quite nice to have in this day and age, whether it be, you know, Netflix, Spotify, whatever. Want those things, you need those things. Uh, you might really love the MotoGP races, but at a certain point, you look at that price point, and you go, I'll just, you know, like Holly has done, I'll just catch up in some other way if I do catch up. And then maybe you don't catch up because the time is limited and you're not paying out of your pocket to make sure you see them. So maybe you, you skip the YouTube highlights or whatever. The problem for me with the Dorna streaming service is that it, it, it feels like traditionally it's kind of been a bit half-arsed. Um, it, it's not a good platform. It crashes during races. It's difficult to do like really basic things like replays and stuff like that. You know, if streaming is the way forward, I think we all know that it's, you know, it's, it's the entire way I consume TV these days. And I think pretty much me and everyone younger than me is exactly the same. But if Dorna are going to go that route, then they have to do it properly because the, you know, the, the video pass experience right now is a disaster as someone that watches it and uses it you know probably more than anyone else um that is an area that they have to kind of up the game if they're gonna if they're gonna jump on the ball with this i guess we get into slightly minute technical stuff but honestly for me technically it's like all my time covering MotoGP and watching you know all the sessions and doing all that technically it's been okay like for me it doesn't it doesn't crash so i'm I do get surprised a lot of the time when people, maybe the timing crashes sometimes, but you sort of get used to that working in motorsport. That's, you know, F1 TV's launch was a lot worse than anything that it's ever happened to Video Pass. And I, I don't know about F1 TV right now because I, I haven't been able to use it much, but I don't know if it's gotten much better. And I don't know if it's overtaken Video Pass in terms of usability. But I think what Simon does correctly point out is. The, the the video player feels a bit old. There's, you know, there are, it, it can be a bit of a handful to, to use and certainly to navigate. And I think they, they are those two big problems. But it's, for me, that is an issue, obviously something to work on. But that is a problem that you resolve for the people who have already paid you money, who, even if the video pass is a bit clunky, if, the, if they are people who will spend 160 on MotoGP for the year, They'll do that even if the video passes a bit. Like as long as the video is coming to their screen, I think they they will shell out, which is not a reason not to 
not to give them the best experience available, but it is, I think it is a different sort of consideration to onboarding. Yeah. Because like the video pass could be pristine and it could be, you know, a, a thousand pixels. Your entire screen is covered with the highest definition. You can smell the bikes. You can smell the leathers. Maybe you shouldn't, but you know what I mean? You shouldn't. Um, and it doesn't matter if the price is too much and the, the time consumed the commitment is too much. That this kind of leads on to the next thing I want to talk about on this front, though, which is whether the TV packages, whether they're on the sports channels or through Video Pass, can do justice to to MotoGP as a product. Now, I'm thinking both on track. Um, Justin Marks of the incoming Trackhouse team recently spoke about how impressive a MotoGP bike is to see in person, how what a real raw sporting experience that is. Does that come across well enough on screen? And also the storylines, you know, do the, it's tricky, obviously, if people just tune in for these 45 minute or 20 minute races without the build up and before and after, do they get the sense of the personalities as well? Now, I'm not saying we have to critique all the broadcasting or draw attention to anyone in particular here, but um, Simon, I think you should start with this. As someone who sees these riders in the flesh all the time and hopefully gets a bit of chance to catch up on some of the coverage as well. Do, do MotoGP storylines and drama come across well enough in how it's how it's shown on screen? I mean, the short answer is no. Um, I got that impression from that big sigh noise. Yeah, that you made no, no, no. I, 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 that's, that's frustration at what could be that sigh. Um, we have, the, the, the weird thing is MotoGP has awesome people behind the scenes making content. You know, they, the videographers they have are world-class. The, um, the production facilities they have are amazing. They have good people running the show, but it feels like sometimes the, the, the prevailing attitude within the organization, within the championship is that every piece of content they produce should be to make the writer in question look as good as possible and i think you lose some of the storyline in that whenever everything feels like you know everything dorna releases feels like something that could have been released by a team interesting it feels like a sort of a pr fluff piece and it would be nice to see a bit more reality to the content that they're producing um at the end of the day the content you know their content is largely uh, mirrored by the broadcasters as well because the broadcasters take Dorna's feed for, for you know, 90% of a race weekend. And I think people want to see a bit more of the reality of it, uh, both on the bike and off the bike. You know, we we do things like cut away whenever, whenever there's drama in a gravel trap after a crash, which people want to see, let's be honest. And then we also do things like spend an entire qualifying session with a camera watching Mark Marquez just in case he does something for him to eventually qualify 11th. Um, you know, the, there are, yeah, it, it feels sometimes like the focus is wrong. Um, the focus and the, you know, the desire to really give us good content off the right, off the, the track, there's much more I'd like to see with what we do. Um, going, actually going behind the scenes, not going behind the scenes is a bit of a, yay, look, everything's happy and lovely in the background. The, um, you know, the, the, the Mark Marquez documentary actually picked up on it a little bit. Um, the one that he basically made himself, um, you know, th there was quite a good scene where it showed some of his rivals coming into his motorhome before he went off to have the, the final arm surgery. You know, it showed who came to kind of wish him well. 
um, which was really nice. That's something that no one sees. But at the same time, there was lots of people that didn't come near him and it would have been nice to get a little bit of the opinion of Marquez of, oh, well, I'm quite surprised he didn't bother showing up and et cetera, et cetera. Well, actually, that, I think that did happen. No, really. didn't it? He, he said, yeah. Aleish came and my teammate, Aleish's brother, didn't yeah. show up. But it, but it was like so, one throwaway I mean, line. And that, that's kind of, you know, it was like a nod to, there was more to this story that we didn't get. And that's kind of what the whole thing feels like. That that's actually a good example of what I'm trying to say because it, you know, sometimes we pay lip service to it and then there's nothing else. Um, yeah, I, I would like to see, I would like to see someone coming into Dorna with the remit to make content, make video content, who is actually wholly independent, um, who has more leeway, more. Uh, less worry about what people are going to say about him and about his job security to just make stuff that, you know, that tells more of the storylines. I think uh, one thing I find, I'm going to come out in defence of MotoGP Unlimited as being... So, You're the I mean, only I'm person gonna be the ever one. to come on this podcast and do that. <laughs> I'm going I'm to be the one. But that is not true. That is emphatically <laughs> not true. Wait. Did I just get erased <laughs> retroactively from the history of this I, I'm podcast? aware that it has been a much discussed uh, product. Um, I think the what it did, I, I think in a way, it, in one aspect, it's a little bit of a drive to survive clone. But what I liked about it is that I felt there were those moments where you had a bit more of that behind the scenes of the riders and what they go through, and and also just the the rawness of what it takes, the rawness and that that real. Uh, intensity of what it takes to do what they do um obviously there was issues with the dubbing situation and all of that absolute nonsense which is which was just slightly calamitous um but on the whole it was for me it was a good way to get in and i think we talk about um we're talking earlier about the idea that the tv production side has to sort of encapsulate everything i think because of the complexity because of all the different layers it's going to be impossible to really capture that entire world in one production and also the way in which we consume sport these days is that it's a very multi-layered approach. We don't just watch the TV production and then go off and go, okay, well, I'll wait a couple of weeks and see what else happens. You know, we have these beautiful things like podcasts. We have uh, the way that it's reported on social media, all of these different layers which feed into the sport and enrich it as a result. You know, if I think of my nephews and the way that they watch football, they never watch a live game of football in their life. But the way that they consume it, they do text live updates, usually, you know, when we're having dinner and you see them with their phones. But that's great. <laughs> that's lovely. They're catching up on it in that way. They'll watch Match of the Day. They'll listen to their favorite podcast for their specific team. And they'll sort of consume it that way. So it's it's not a traditional route of the TV, you know, the TV production is is the one only way to consume it. Because what it should be doing is telling the best possible story of the race, you know, the way in which we represent how that happens. And I think when you when you think about those race weekends, I think the one thing that would be really good to bear in mind for people is that there'll be one person out there who is watching this for the first time. And are they going to understand what's going on? I don't mean pander to... To, to everyone, because there's going to be people who are very well informed, you know, your purists who really know their stuff, who really know their history. But if you're really wanting to build out that audience, I think you have to kind of open the door a little bit and go, okay, this is what this means. This is why this is significant. And really don't be afraid to kind of reiterate the real impact of what these things mean and why that's such a great achievement and why doing, you know, when, I mean, it was one, one, of, my, one of the moments I knew I was completely hooked on. MotoGP was, I think it was 2021 in Austria, and Brad Binder's win. 
in the rain where he basically oh, yeah. sailed he sort of sailed his bike on completely the wrong tires across the finish line and it was just one of those absolute bonkers moments not every race gets to be that scale of extraordinary experience but it but for me it was just that 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 spectacle and you almost you could have had that race without any commentary and it still would have been an incredible spectacle but for those weekends where where you know you want to be able to explain to people a little bit more and to share those stories and and to really get a sense of the scale of operation of what's happening happening here i think you know the backbender thing is a is a good example and also it, it makes me think of again it makes me think of the comparisons to other sports because you know there are other sports where you know where things like that happen and first of all you immediately see them on social media uh shared not just by, by the official accounts but by everybody else and I, I don't want to say remixed, but like analyzed. When something like that happens in, in some of the sports I watch, it's very often that you immediately see somebody, one of the one of the people you follow from the media, go on what used to be Twitter. I mean, Twitter's a mess now, but when it used to be good, they'd go on Twitter and you, you'd have a three minute video that is just like a very detailed, very knowledgeable breakdown of, okay, this is how he did that. This is how he was cornering compared to other people. This is how it would look for Brad Binder. Like, this is the normal line. Here's the moment where he nearly fell off. Here's why, etc., etc. And it really, it makes this very unintuitive thing very accessible. Because yes, it, it is enjoyable to watch somebody, you know, basically puddle hop in the in the rain and barely lean and try so desperately to stay on a bike that does not want to be in these conditions and that's you know it is intuitively understandable but what a lot of sports do so well right now is they they take their maybe intuitively understandable highlights or highlights that are not so understandable and they really imbue them with like layers and layers of easy to digest analysis that make you feel like you you know more about what's going on without having had to spent two or three weeks studying up and doing books because not everybody who watches MotoGP will be a bike rider and even those who are bike riders like I'm sure I'm sure y'all are great bike riders don't think you've quite experienced similar types of experiences to what what these guys are doing on the track let's talk a bit about the the at the event experience as well uh Ollie wrote a little column for us last year about his his first taste of MotoGP in person some of the things that stuck with him particularly having been at the Formula One Grand Prix so it was done a few weeks before that um uh, one of the things that really stood out to me from that column Ollie was how much you were still noticing a Valentino Rossi effect among the crowds and if you're looking for if you're trying to judge people's favorite riders by what they were wearing a guy who hadn't been a MotoGP for two years still seemed to be the most popular person not even in, in the field. Uh, that that feels like it's still a problem. MotoGP doesn't quite know how to shift. As someone, you almost, I guess, post-Rossi coming into MotoGP, that must have felt kind of strange in, in person. Yeah, um, Rossi is obviously somebody I was aware of from an ex- external perspective um, and understanding this legacy and this this amazing character and this the impact on the sport and everything like that. I mean, walking around wherever you look and... On the Saturday, it was a very, very wet day. But the one thing really punching through the crowd were these fluorescent numbers just kind of poking through. And you see so many people. And it's obviously there's going to be these legacies in the sport. And I think it's really good to celebrate the history of a sport, but not just to kind of stay back there to kind of who are, who are going to be the next big people kind of coming through. And sometimes you can't plan these things. It's just going to take a certain type of character to come in and really capture the imagination and I think what's quite exciting is that 
looking towards next season, you've got someone like Acosta taking that step up who has the potential to sort of have that kind of charisma and, and be able to kind of take things forward. But yeah, it's it's a feeling that it's... What really struck me as well was looking, even just from a merchandise perspective, so I was wandering around, you know, part of my role is that I design merchandise and I was looking at other merchandise stuff and looking out there and you'd look at the VR46 stand and you'd see... I'd say a good 80-90% Valentino Rossi merchandise. And then right down at the top right-hand corner, you, there'd be one Marco Bezzecchi cap sort of tucked away in the top, and and it was 50 quid. And you go, oh, that's quite a lot of money to be spending on a cap and just the one design. And, and I think it just feels like it, it, it sort of wasn't you're not putting the new riders on the pedestal that they sort of deserve to be. You know, you're not allowing people to find that individual relationship with those riders because you're kind of you you know give give them the space now. This is the this is the opportunity for the VR46 team to to really work in its best possible way. I think it is about putting those people out there and celebrating them that way and there first. But then also, you know, you you for years to come, people are still going to be buying Rossi Rossi gear. And and that's that's an incredible gift to the sport to have had somebody of that level, but that shouldn't be the main the main focus. Yeah, you know, just anecdotally, this I am in urban Germany right now, and a couple of blocks over, there's a van parked up with forty a big forty six sticker on it, and it is the the whole extent of any sort of MotoGP in like flavor I've encountered here in in this particular time when I ask people during our pub quiz whether they watch MotoGP much. They do not. And it would be unthinkable to encounter somebody else's number here. Like, with all due respect to Stefan Bradl, who's a great guy, who I, I have nothing bad to say about it, there's not going to be a six there, which is which is a bit of a bummer. Because I you know, I think I, I've said this a bunch of times on the podcast, and I, I will stand by it for, for a very long time. Um, there's something systemic happening here. It is not all about Valentino Rossi's animal magnetism or force of personality, even though he is a force of personality. Uh, firstly, you know, seeing Mark Marquez in person, hearing him speak, hearing how he conducts himself, you understand that he is also a force of personality. Seeing in front of him, you understand he is different, but you understand how he could, in maybe slightly different circumstances, be even a bigger deal than he is very easily. But also, our young guys aren't boring. I know there's a there's a very well-trodden uh, impression that they're boring, that the, you know, they've had the personality PR'd out of them. And it will be true to a certain extent compared to 50 years ago, compared to 40 years ago, compared to 20 years ago. But again, I, you know, we're going to compare with Formula One because Formula One is the, the, the side of the sport that's doing this right right now, that is so good at marketing its young stars. I've always said this, Fabio Quartararo is not less interesting than any single one of the young Formula One drivers, no less interesting, no less, and I'm sorry, but this also does matter, no less physically attractive. I know we've the the, the interview with Dan has brought up his perpetual shirtlessness, but it's hard to avoid. In fairness, it's hard to avoid. Yeah, but he looks good. Uh, you know that does yeah. that does help, and he is again not less interesting than those Formula One guys who I also all you know gener genuinely adore, but who have become superstars that would have been unimaginable five to ten years ago how how much people go to bat for them now and how they follow their every moves and how there are twitter accounts that seem literally dedicated to just oh he's been spotted there 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 like they're taylor swift genuinely we, our guys are not less interesting than that so there's something that something else that is making it happen and it's honestly 
as weird as that sounds, it's such a weird task to levy. But Dan Rossomondo needs to get on Twitter and figure out how all of these Charlotte Leclerc fan accounts <laughs> became came to be and make sure the Fabio Quartararo fan accounts are equally as numerable and whatever is the genesis for them needs to happen for us. It's no surprise at all that the MotoGP rider who's the closest friends with a number of these F1 drivers is the one that has the, the biggest presence and who's desperately always taking his clothes off to try and get some extra publicity, isn't it? Well, you have said before, Simon, that Quartararo has a very different fan base to a lot of the other riders and he has cultivated that across his social media pretty well it's just not it's not reached that height yet maybe it will if he gets a more sustained run at being at the front but there's something different about how he conducts himself i think in that regard not yeah. just by unzipping his leathers that much no i mean whenever whenever you look at even whenever you look at the results of like MotoGP's fan surveys um that they conduct on a large scale it's quarter that is the number one now in terms of popularity by by quite a long way Interesting. um and i think it is because there's something a bit different about him he is a bit more out there um he's a bit more open and you know maybe he just gets the younger demographic a bit better because it's worth remembering that you know he is quite a bit younger than any of his rivals who are not a product of the vr46 academy and while the VR46 Academy has made loads of great fast racers, you know, maybe it's also made a generation of guys who are doing things a little bit old fashioned in terms of social media, in terms of putting themselves out there. Um, you know, it, it's, it, it, you know, the, the other guy who I think gets it in terms of being out there and in terms of putting himself on a, on a bit of a different pedestal is uh, Jorge Martin who, again, is a bit younger and doesn't come from that same school of, of Italian way of learning to be a MotoGP rider. And maybe that's what it takes. Maybe, maybe this is something we're going to see improve as younger generations of riders finally start to come through the sport a bit. I mean, it will be no surprise if the next superstar of the sport is Pedro Acosta. And that's not because of his incredible talent in a MotoGP bike. It's also because of all the other stuff that's going on with him. You know, we've had him in the podcast. He's been phenomenally entertaining. It, it's pretty obvious why I'm saying that I think he's going to be something special in the future. You just also, in that answer, you gave me the idea that I hadn't considered before of a Martin versus Quartararo title fight one day and how ridiculously entertaining that could get both on track and off. I don't think Quartararo is going to have the kind of dignified holding back that Pecco Bagnaia um, employed this yet. It's a lovely thought. Um, one final thing on the, on the on-track spectacle and attending events. Simon, you obviously you're not there as a pure spectator, but you go to every round every year and you often report back in, the, in our work chat about how some places are conspicuously empty, either places that used to be a lot busier or places where MotoGP would have hoped to be making more of an impact. Thinking more positively though, which races are doing it well right now? Who is getting a good crowd and, and what are they doing to, to make that happen? I mean, if you're if you're a MotoGP race in Europe and you're struggling in any way at all, then all of your senior management team should be visiting Assen and Le Mans every year to see how they do things because they're the ones, along with Saxon Ring, that just make it work. Um, they put on... It's a proper full-spectrum package. It's not just the bikes on track. It's all the other stuff that goes on around it. And it's clearly working for them because, you know, Le Mans had 105,000 people through the doors for race day, which is huge. Um, outside of Europe, there are other races. You know, Thailand really, really nails it. Um, it's it's actually quite 
weird when you go to the race in Thailand and then compare it to, say, the race in Indonesia, where you'd expect the Indonesian race to be so much bigger. Thailand just do it better because they get that it's more than just the bikes on track. And yeah, it it, it would be nice to see more races becoming a bit more like that. Um, I think Ollie will be able to jump in on this that to say that Silverstone tried to do it this year, I think. They tried to be more than just a motorbike race. And didn't work very well in part because of the weather i think in part because it's a bit of a new thing for people in the uk it's not what we've traditionally had at races so it, it needs time to grow but they you know the, the potential is there because they've got the you know they've realized what other people are doing yeah with with silverstone it was interesting i wasn't able to make it on the first day which i think would have been a really key day to go because they did they had the hero walk there was some amazing um it's amazing charity stuff that's going on as well. It was. It felt like that would have been a really good kickoff day. But of course, if I'm thinking of me as a fan, I've got to take off an extra day's annual leave. And it just became one of those things where I took off the Friday, but not Thursday, Friday. Um, as, as an experience, it, it felt like everything on track was was great. I mean, Silverstone, I appreciate in, in motorcycle racing circles. Obviously, it's maybe not the perfect track because you just have that slight more distance to the actual track itself from the grandstands so you're that little bit further so it's you know you you're needing to rely on binoculars you're needing to rely on the screens one thing which really frustrated me i have to say as a fan experience was on the screens that they had set up um even though you know we were on the sort of final corner looking across the screen and because they were taking the tv feed exactly as it was you could not for the life of you, be able to make out any of the numbers that were being broadcast. It was it was extraordinary how there was no sense of, okay, well, maybe if we do like a separate feed for this one and we just increase the number size, something like that, just so you can see what position people are in. You know, I was relying on using a little FM radio that I've had for years to, to actually listen to the commentary, but what 18-year-old has an FM radio? Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. this is this is not technology which is necessarily yeah. available to everyone and if you're trying to listen on a live stream or something like that you're going to be a minute late so you're going to not be actually experiencing it live as well but yeah throughout the sort of silverstone experience it was it sort of felt like it was it was enjoyable like really enjoyable the atmosphere is great the race itself was was brilliant and even despite the weather there was kind of good spirits but you know people were turning up for an event and then going back to the campsite and trying to get out of the rain i think the it, it felt like there could just be a little bit more and a, a few more of those events where you're having that kind of engagement, you know, for, for the little that there was, you know, there, there is, I believe I sent you guys a picture of me with the lace Espargaro and um, that was great because it was like, oh, it's cool, cool to meet a, a rider. And, you know, he was, he, he gave a lot of his time for that, which was, which was fantastic and greatly appreciated. But there, there's sort of, there were little, little moments like this, but it didn't feel like there was that great festival atmosphere. And I have to say, looking at everything that was going on in Le Mans last year, that suddenly was put on my list of like, okay, I have to go experience that because that looks incredible. That looked like that real festival of motorsport that I just want to be a part of because that's the joy is getting together with people, having that camaraderie, having that excitement and just being able to experience it all. So I think when we get you back on the podcast uh, later this season, Ollie, you'll have to let us know, have you now shelled out for video pass? Have you committed to going to Le Mans or Assen? And if you have, <laughs> then we can, Simon can let Dan Rossomondo know that uh, it's working. Everything's going well. You've, you've, uh, you've kept this, Ollie. Now, get some, <laughs> now keep a few more. 
Well, I'm very happy to, if, if I want to be funded to go check out and do a, a fan's eye view, you can send me around the world. I'll be more than happy to uh, be a fan correspondent for the race. I, I don't think I sign off your expenses. <laughs> so that's a yes? That's a maybe. <laughs> that's a, that's a, not my problem. Um, thank you so much for joining us, though, Ollie. Thank you, everyone, who sent in the question for Dan Rossamondo as well. It was really appreciated. A bit of a different episode, uh, to, uh, far less about the riders and more about what you out there as fans and viewers are experiencing please keep in touch with us on this sort of thing as you know simon is extremely active on x and uh, we do monitor everything that gets raised by fans on there to, to think about topics both for the podcast and for articles on the race website as well uh, we'll be back quite often over the next few weeks because we're just about to begin MotoGP launch season and our approach to this is pretty much going to be if they hold a decent event and say some interesting things about it we'll do a podcast about it but we'll definitely do one about the Grassini Duke Ducati launch which kicks things off this weekend as Mark Marquez appears as, an, as a Ducati rider officially for the first time okay we had Valencia test but this time he'll be in the right colours, he'll, he'll feel real for the first time. Simon will be there and we'll be recording with him hopefully from the event or straight afterwards and getting that into your ears very rapidly after that uh, thank you for your company, thank you for your questions uh, we'll see you all on the next episode of the Race Matter GP podcast The Athletic.